This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday debit card purchases with no fees, period. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to getting connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Hey, y'all. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And today, we're going to talk about something pretty much all of us do, but none of us can agree on the rules. I'm talking about tipping. It's a topic that's been coming up for me a lot on social media, because it seems a little more ever-present in life, too. Everywhere you go now, you have to tip. That's Ramtin Arablui, one of the hosts of NPR's history show, Throughline, where he did a deep dive on tipping. It used to be that you would tip when you sat down for a meal, usually. But now, if you go to any kind of place, like a Chipotle or any other place, there's a tipping option. There's like a kind of a surcharge on everything they're paying for now. So I think it's frustrating a lot of people. In the last couple of years, it seems like tipping etiquette has shifted. We're being asked to tip in more situations, on a bottle of water, for grab-and-go sandwiches. I've even been asked to tip at a corner store while grabbing snacks. While this may have something to do with more touchscreens taking our orders, there's also been a hot debate over how much to tip. Just last week, I saw fights on social media about how some people now consider 20% too small a tip. So today, we take a look at what causes tipping to get more common, what it says about this moment in history, and what it says about us as a nation. Ramteen, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you for having me, Brittany. Oh, my pleasure. It's so exciting to have a pod cousin on the show. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we are. I'm excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. I love talking about topics that we all interact with on a regular basis that make people extremely upset to unpack. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very emotional, (laughs) for sure. Today, we're going to talk about tipping. Yes. Tipping feels almost essential to being like an American consumer. But tipping hasn't always been a part of the fabric of our country's economy. Like there was a time when it was considered un-American. That's right. When and why was that? Yeah. So it's both an economic reality and a cultural reality. It's in our psychology. It's deep within us, this idea that we need to tip. And you're also right that if you look back at particularly early American history, so the United States was established in many ways to be a break from Europe's culture, which was defined by feudalism. So this notion Mm -hmm. that you are stuck in the class you're born in and there is a small elite class that's served by a class of serfs or workers, basically. Before there was even a restaurant culture, people would tip servants in their homes. Yeah, like the country homes in the pre-industrial world, there weren't restaurants, but it was like the expectation that if somebody was serving you, you had to give them a little money. Exactly. It was a way of showing how wealthy you were. Kind of like now a little bit in a certain way. Well, that's what's kind of haunting and weird about all this is that there was an an acknowledgement from Americans that it was un-American, it was unchristian to put somebody in a servile position by giving them that tip. 
and that we shouldn't do that in the United States. People view tipping in the United States as distasteful, as flunkyism. That's one word people would use or Mm. a shakedown. And when the Civil War ended, this is where it gets really, and this is continually kind of gets dark. So there's this widespread acceptance that tipping is bad. Most Americans didn't tip. After the Civil War, so many enslaved people are now free and looking for work, right? So Mm -hmm. suddenly it becomes an opportunity for big companies in budding restaurants, which is a new industry that's evolving in the late 19th century. Companies are looking to essentially take advantage of all these workers who are now available, who are formerly enslaved, who don't have many rights. And so it's essentially they view it as cheap labor. Hmm. And one famous person who did this uh, is George Pullman, who owned the Pullman Railroads, basically. He was one of these kind of barons, basically, uh, Mm -hmm. of the late 19th century. And he intentionally, after the Civil War, went and hired black men. And particularly, he was very open about this, southern black men, Mm -hmm. to come work as porters on his railroads. I had a relative who was a Pullman porter. Oh, really? Yes, Wow. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Interesting. That's so fascinating because the numbers, when you look at the numbers, it was thousands of young black men took these jobs. Mm-hmm. One, because there wasn't many other jobs available. That's number one. Number two, it was a way to see the country. It was, especially if you're young, it's a way to get away from where you lived, right? Because you get to travel right. across the country and work. But part of this was that Pullman saved on wages. He would pay most average wage for someone at that time was about $27 a month that he would pay, which Mm. even for then was nothing. And the rest is supposed to be made up with tips. The expectation was railroad porters would smile at the customers, would provide good customer service. And he was in the process creating this fantasy for the budding, mostly white middle class that you could be treated like a king or queen of your castle, basically, while you're on the train. Even though you can't afford to have servants at home, you can kind of have that experience while you're on the train. The idea that, like, people couldn't afford to have a servant or staff in their house, but they could get it on the train, that makes me think so much about Postmates, Uber Eats, all of those apps that that link you with somebody, or Uber, for instance, if you can't afford a driver, you can request in the app if they speak to you or not or what temperature you want. Yes. That psychology of why the Pullman porters might be appealing to like white middle-class Americans feels very familiar. <laughs> you Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. It feels very familiar. I mean, today, in a lot of ways, we have the same sort of inequality in the demographics of who's doing the serving as a job. Who is in that position? But it also, and this is just my personal opinion, it points to a psychological contradiction in American culture, which is Mm. on the one hand, we want to see each other as a country of equals, egalitarianism, meritocracy, Mm -hmm. these ideas that we're not like the old world. You're not set in one place. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, et cetera. But we also want to experience what it's like to be at the top of the feudal food chain. Hmm, hmm. You know, it's got me thinking so much about just the concept of customer service <laughs> and like how loaded of a concept that is. I can't really decouple customer service expectations from this callback to another time where the racial caste system in America was more strongly enforced, like where a Southern black man working as a Pullman porter could be severely underpaid and also seen as the ideal servant you know, the smiling, the caring things it makes me think so much about like some of the um, 
customer meltdowns, I think, that we all see yes. on social media from time to time, when people feel as if they haven't gotten it their way, to quote Burger King, circa the 90s. Yes. You know, the customer is always right. Like, all, it's so much of that is baked into our culture. But it's, you know, learning the history, it's very hard to decouple those things and to kind of pull all that apart. I agree. And I think the tipping is the currency Mm-hmm. of that customer service setup that you just talked about. You know, I actually want to say one thing that it's not all doom and gloom. There has been anti-tipping movements in in America's past, mm-hmm. very strong ones. And in fact, there's a book called The Itching Palm uh, that was written in 1916 by a guy named William Rufus Scott. Yeah. It was almost like the kind of communist manifesto for anti-tipping. It's a manifesto against tipping. There's actually a quote from it I'd read, which I think really sums it up, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. So Scott wrote in the book, The theory of Americanism requires that every citizen shall possess this quality. Tipping is the price of pride. It is what one American is willing to pay to induce another American to acknowledge inferiority. It represents the root of aristocracy budding anew in the hearts of those who publicly renounce the system and all its works. The relation of a man giving a tip and a man accepting it is as undemocratic as the relation of master and slave. This is elementary. This was in 1916. The idea that this movement Hmm. began then and has been kind of pushing in there's anti-tip movements today, or I wouldn't even call them anti-tip, I would say pro-living wage movements where people say you should be able to provide a living wage. And if you want to tip someone on top of that, well, that's a different kind of cultural thing. But no one should need a tip to survive. We're still having this debate and this discussion, whereas in Europe, for example, they made the conscious decision in most countries to include a kind of labor surcharge. That's why you don't have to worry about it, because it's already in your bill. You're already paying for the person who serves you food. It's part of it. Hmm. I wonder, like, how does all of that play into the politics around tipping? Basically, in the middle of the 20th century, the United States made a conscious decision to freeze wages at a certain rate for restaurant workers. So Mm. after the Great Depression happens, FDR comes along, the minimum wage is put into place. There was no minimum wage until the, the 1930s. But one thing that's not talked about is that restaurants were excluded from that minimum wage, basically from the beginning. And the first National Restaurant Association was established in 1919. So they were lobbying to be excluded. Mm. And they were successful in 1919. They were successful in 1966, where there was an amendment to the minimum wage bill. And in the process of amending it, they calculated a minimum wage that was different, basically a sub-minimum wage for Mm. restaurant workers. And the last time they froze it was 1996 at $2.13 an hour. Right. So it's two thirteen an hour right now as a minimum wage for restaurant workers. Federally, right. And, and the rest is supposed to be made up with tips. So essentially what the restaurant industry has done is say, instead of paying our workers, what we're going to do is going to take that cost and put it on the consumer. You are responsible for taking care of the people who work for us or making sure that they are paid. You know, I think a lot of us were confronted with that during the pandemic over the past few years, we got the messaging that it's hard to be a small business. And, you know, like these workers, whether they're at the grocery store, they're delivery workers, restaurant workers, they're not getting hazard pay to be there during the pandemic. I wonder, like, how do you think about a shift in tipping culture as like a fallout from the pandemic? What's interesting is we kind of have been here before in Hmm. another moment of 
economic difficulty. So the pandemic, obviously, it was a yeah. very difficult economic time. And the other moment where tipping took off, interestingly, was around the Great Depression in the early 20th century and Prohibition and around that time. Mm. So similarly, in a moment where restaurants' revenues were down because right, you couldn't right. sell alcohol, right, right. tipping became a way for restaurants to make up the difference in terms of their wages to their workers. Every time there's an economic downturn mm -hmm. and suddenly it's more difficult to have a small business or any business, there's an acceptance of this pushing of responsibility to consumers. We're told that this is the only way our economy will survive. But where's the conversation about the responsibility for the larger companies to do this in particular? Like, let's just use mm. an example of some of these um, tech companies that do food delivery services, right. right? Right, right. Their fundamental business model is to take the risk and shift it upon onto the worker and then shift mm -hmm. a significant amount of the pay onto the consumer And they mm. say, we're just the middle person. We're just the tech company in the middle. But why aren't we having a conversation about how much they should chip in? Whether there should right. be increased, whether these businesses should even exist as they are. Because mm. in my opinion, essentially what they're doing is they're gaming loopholes within our system and what we're willing to accept in order to have companies. And mm. we have to have a conversation. Should those companies exist? If a restaurant mm. can't pay its workers, should it exist? And and mm. this is a difficult conversation. I don't and I'm honestly asking it more than answering it because I know right. it, there's a whole bunch of fallout that can come from that. But I don't think we're even having that conversation about responsibility and who bears the responsibility. I've been curious about anti-tipping movements for a while. And I remember reading an op-ed piece written by, I believe, a restaurant owner and chef who changed their restaurant so that all of the servers would get a living wage. So they would be tip free, like no tip restaurant. They were surprised by what happened, which was that as an individual restaurant, some of their servers were really unhappy with that because through the tipping system, they felt like if I hustle a little more or if I get a certain amount of tables, you know, I'm going to make more money that night. And they ended up in a position where they weren't able to be as competitive as other restaurants that had kept tipping. I don't think that that's necessarily an indication that like tipping should continue to be a practice the way that it is now. But I thought it was interesting that kind of made it clear how difficult of a problem this is for an individual restaurant to address. What do you yes. see as a way yeah, out yeah. of our current tipping system? Like, where do we go? Yeah, you know, it is complicated. And I think it varies from restaurant to restaurant and mm -hmm. don't want to oversimplify at all. But When we did this episode, we looked into the actual research around this that people have yeah. done. And the, the truth is that maybe at the higher end restaurants, waiters feel like anti-tipping kind of hurts their wages to some extent. And, mm -hmm. and that may be true. That's not the vast majority of restaurants. The vast majority of restaurants are for working class people. For those workers, of course, it's a better deal to have a working wage. What do you think our current culture of tipping says about our society? I don't think it says good things. <laughs> I think it says two main things. Mm -hmm. It reflects on a very poor attitude towards workers and worker organizing. Fundamental needs of labor are not our priority, even though the vast majority of us are workers. Mm. And the second thing, our attitude towards tipping, in my opinion, shows what our attitude towards poor people of color 
is mm. in this country. The large portion of that population are either poor or they're people of color or they're both. We are willing to accept this fundamental contradiction and, in my opinion, unfairness and cruelty as long as we're able to get our goods and services in the time we want to get them, hmm. with the level of service we want to get them, and uh, to our satisfaction. And ultimately, we're willing to have somebody else in a position of inferiority towards mm-hmm. us. And we may like it. We may want it because it makes each of us as a consumer feel valued, feel like we're getting something for our money. Mm-hmm. And that for a very fleeting moment, we talked about we get to feel elite well Ramtin, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this this was so illuminating thank you Brittany thanks again to Ramtin Arablui co-host of NPR's Throughline you can hear their episode about tipping called Land of the Fee wherever you get your podcasts it is so good I highly recommend it Up next, we dive deep into a service sector that people are calling deeply dysfunctional, even before the tip. Black hair braiding. Stick around. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Debit card users, Discover has something especially for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can start earning cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back on debit purchases because cash back isn't just for credit cards. Plus, there are no fees, period. Finally, the game-changing checking account you deserve. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Carvana has made it easy to sell your car. Just enter your license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and they'll give you a real offer in seconds, and it's good for up to seven days. Visit carvana.com to get an instant offer today. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Picture this. After weeks of rain, the sun finally parts through the clouds. People are jogging in the streets. Your neck is sticky with sweat, and a sweet summertime jam plays in the distance. It's summertime. Your long-awaited vacation is next week, and the last thing you need to do is get your hair braided. So you open Instagram, search the hashtag for the style you want, and enter the world of the Instagram stylist. If you're a black girl who has tried to get her hair done in the past two or three years, you may have been a victim of this current epidemic of unprofessionalism that's going on with stylists these days. The IG stylist is a digital shorthand for social media savvy hairstylists who specialize in all the latest hair trends. Lace wigs, silk presses, human hair clip-ins, lock extensions, you name it, somebody on Instagram does it. But out of all the styles, Fox braids have become one of the most consistent points of tension between stylists and clients. 
there are countless videos, TikToks, and threads of clients who are fed up with what they feel is a complete lack of customer service. There's the booking rules. I just called the Pennsylvania Cosmetology Board on a stylist because I just read through her booking rules and it says she charges an extra fee for 4C hair. Little to no hair care. This lady's prices go from $780 to $1,000 and it does not include a wash, does not include detangling. You have to come with your hair already blown out and straightened out. And deeply confusing pricing structures. Is the IRS aware of the fact that you guys are charging $1,000 for braids? Every few scrolls, there are videos of clients recounting negative to downright infuriating experiences with hairstylists. Last minute cancellations, no shows, stylists who eat while doing hair, and stylists who double and triple book while still charging upwards of $500 for a braided style. On today's installment of our continuing segment, we're exploring what's behind these viral videos and answering a question on a lot of Black women's minds. Why does something as simple as getting your hair braided feel impossible? And is there a world where you could have an affordable, efficient, and fair place to get your hair braided? A Black supercuts of braids, if you will. Well, it turns out it's a lot more complicated than you think. So, dear listener, let's get some basics out of the way. Is it possible to have an affordable braider? Well, for many of us, one option is having your friend, your sister, or your cousin do it for free. But in my opinion, you've already paid handsomely for that by investing in the relationship. But there's also the question of if your cousin, your sister, or your friend can really deliver on what you're looking for. I wanted to get the French curl braids that were popularized in West Africa and haven't fully come into like the American context but it's starting to, and I had to figure out how to get the hair. I found it on Instagram. This is Julesy, public historian and YouTuber. She's been one of the few people online dissecting the IG stylist conundrum through a historical and economic framework. Think about yourself at 1920 and like, oh, I just want to make $25 an hour. And it's not $25 an hour anymore, so you can make six figures. And to make a lot of money, these IG stylists have got to charge a lot of money, which not every customer is willing to pay. They're not the majority, but I do know some stylists who do charge close to $1,000. Now, there are stylists out there who price fairly, have excellent customer service, and do beautiful work. I've been with my hairstylist for over a decade for this reason. But many of those stylists require advanced bookings to stay on schedule, and a lot of customers are looking for drop-in, same-day service. And those who want fast and affordable same-day braiding services often turn to the braiders at their local African braiding salon. These salons tend to employ African immigrant women who can braid hair fast and cheap, which might sound good to the consumer, but your experience and results may vary. And Julie says, depending on the salon, there are ethical issues to think about. You have three, four people on your head and you pay $200, how are they getting paid? Hmm. I don't think you shouldn't promote the African hair salon. There's African hair salons that I go to that they charge in the regular rate everybody else is charging. But the ones that are doing like not list five people on your head, you're getting out this at a very low cost. Mm, spidey senses go off. Hair braiding is ultimately a business. You know that, I know that, but some of us are not acknowledging that with business comes a transactional relationship. 
both client and stylist will always want to maximize profit and minimize expense. One wants to make money, and so that's their focal point, and one wants the lowest cost possible to the highest quality service. And so I do think there are some justifiable complaints that stylists hold about how consumers engage with them. And I think on the consumer side, there are very legitimate complaints about the lack of customer service that is happening because everybody's trying to cut corners. But not so fast. There's another factor we haven't addressed, supply and demand. And there's one lawyer who thinks that the supply of hair braiders is being artificially squeezed through licensing requirements and the steep penalties for braiding without one. For instance, in New York, your first offense for working without a license could be up to $500. And then as those rise, you know, the highest amount that they could charge you is $2,500. Or you could be faced with a misdemeanor and you could be imprisoned for up to six months. This is Jessica Poitras, Legislative Counsel for the Institute for Justice, a nonprofit organization that has been representing hair braiders in the fights against what she sees as unfair licensing laws. Yeah, you could be imprisoned up to six months. And licensing laws don't just impact who is allowed to braid. It also limits what some hair braiders are allowed to do. Take, for example, the viral fury over hair braiders not washing their clients' hair. Turns out that might be a legal issue. And in every state, the definition's a little bit different. But for the most part, there are some braiders in some states that can braid hair, but they can't wash hair, right? Like that's mm. that's the law. Like it would be illegal if they washed your it hair. It would be illegal because shampooing hair falls within cosmetology and the braiding falls outside of that. Now, I think most people's next question would be, so why not get licensed? That'll solve everything. Not quite. Coming up, Jessica tells us why she's fighting for braiders to be exempt from cosmetology licensing. This message comes from Jackson. Seek clarity in retirement planning at Jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial, Inc., Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Here and Now, Anytime is a news podcast from NPR and WBUR that zigs when others zag. You've already heard the headlines, so go deeper on the stories that affect you with people who know what's up. Explore your world, learn something new, and make the news make sense with Here and Now, Anytime. Available wherever you get your podcasts. On the StoryCorps podcast, we believe a lot of the most interesting stories are right there in front of us, waiting to be told. So every week, we share a candid, unscripted conversation between two people around the themes of love, loss, family, and friendship. These aren't experts or celebrities, just everyday people like you and me. Listen now to the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Now, let me clarify, not every state requires a license to braid hair. Many states have changed the laws recently and gotten rid of the requirement, Montana being the most recent. Now there are 33 states where you can operate without a license. 
But where I live, in New York, while braiders do not need a full cosmetology license, they do need a special braiding license. And to get that, you need a minimum of 300 training hours. In a perfect world, there would be a school that would offer just that 300 hours, right? But schools don't have an incentive to offer specific training for these small specialty licenses, especially hair braiding. And so we have people who are working as hair braiders in what we call underground economies, right? So they are faced with two options, work without a license, which is illegal, or go through a traditional cosmetology program. Those sorts of things increase costs for consumers as well, right? That's how all businesses work. You're not just paying for the actual service that you're getting, you're paying for how they trained, learned, their experience, their knowledge base to be able to give you that service in that time and in a manner that you find suitable. So if a hair braider wants to go the legal route, they might face a number of barriers. They'll need to pass exams, which are mostly in English. And tuition can cost around 15K, depending on where they are. They'll need to find the time to attend classes, and they will need to learn skills that have zero connection to the one thing they may want to do. Braid. Hair braiding, um, as you and I both know, right, is a cultural and traditional grooming hair care technique for Black Americans and, and persons of African descent. It's a skill that's passed socially as opposed to formally. So like you might learn it from like a mother, sister, cousin, something like that, as opposed to in a classroom at a beauty school. I can understand why a stylist would need to go to beauty school to even learn the process of dyeing hair and and then to also apprentice under a stylist. Like you could burn someone's scalp off or improperly mix reactive chemicals. But are there risks to braiding? There are risks associated with doing everything in the world, Mm -hmm. right? But hair braiding very specifically is a very safe technique and skill. As Black women, we know it to be a protective style, right? Like kind of mm-hmm. the whole point of, of getting some braiding services for some women um, is to be able to wear a protective style that protects our hair and allows it to grow. And I always like to say that, especially with the work that I do, is unlicensed does not mean untrained. Mm. We want we want our braiders, we want consumers to be trained. We are very pro-education. We just want you to get that education in a way that benefits you and your consumers. So if you already have the skill, great. You shouldn't have to go to school. But if you do need the skills, we want you to be able to find that training and have that training Mm. available. But the the current system, the way that it's set up, it's just not readily available for hair braiders. Are there other types of skills, like maybe business management skills that are taught in cosmetology school that would be useful for braiders? Having any sort of training on how to run a business would be great. The problem is is we don't require that of other businesses, right? So if you want to open up a restaurant, we don't require people to go to business school to learn how to run a restaurant and how to keep books for a restaurant. Gosh, gosh. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jessica Poitras, Legislative Counsel for the Institute for Justice. So we've heard the client's perspective. We've heard the legal perspective, but what about the stylist's perspective? To understand what goes into the actual cost of braiding and how we might get closer towards an ideal for everyone, we called up a real-life stylist, and she has a license. Her name is Teray Rimple of Teray's Hair Beauty in Brooklyn, New York. Teray, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay, so you are a licensed 
hair braid or hairstylist, but you had braided hair before you got your license. What made you decide to get the license? So for me personally, I kind of slid into it. And as I Mm -hmm. saw myself going full time and getting more clients, expanding and whatnot, Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to legitimize it for myself. So you ended up actually going beyond the minimum requirement for New York State, um, which is getting a natural hair braiding license. Mm -hmm. You went to cosmetology school. But I have to ask, did they teach hair braiding at (laughs) cosmetology school? They had it on the syllabus. I would say that they did have it on the syllabus, just basic braids. Uh However, when I went there, I kind of ended up teaching the braiding and, you know, going a little further with it, the cornrows and whatnot, because (laughs) even the teacher there, he wasn't that much of a braider. And so Uh he saw what I could do and he was just like, okay, you need to help me out with this. So, no, and it wasn't on the state board either. Yeah, it wasn't on the state board. You didn't really need to know how to braid in order to get the license. (laughs) I imagine you paid tuition. I did. To attend (laughs) cosmetology school. And then you ended up teaching. (laughs) Basically, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For that one week, yes, I did. (laughs) So, you didn't learn to braid at school, but did you get anything else out of cosmetology school? I did learn more about, like coloring and cuts. And also they taught me about valuing myself as a stylist. Hmm. It sounds like they did give you some guidance then about like professionalism and Mm -hmm. how to set boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What about like other aspects of business, like basic accounting, scheduling, things like that? Was that also part of the mix? No, not that I could remember. Granted, I got my license a few years ago, so I might not remember every single thing. Mm. You are aware of the climate right now online. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You've, I'm sure, seen the videos and the rants and the threads and everything. What do you think clients misunderstand about braiding as a profession? I... I think they don't put as much value as they should on their stylist. And they don't really mm. see that this is an art form that it took a while to learn, to master. It puts wear and tear on our bodies, on our feet, on our hands. We're standing up for hours. Wow. My hands, mm. you know, sometimes more so back in the day, it would swell or get a little stiff. So I have to run cold water on them. Or when I'm walking outside in the winter, I put my hands outside of my jacket just so the cold can get to it. I also only use my hands for braiding. I don't open jars or do crazy heavy lifting with my fingers or my hands. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, you don't open jars? Not if it's hard to open. Like if I try to open it and it doesn't open right away. (laughs) You protect your money makers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like to that point, there's been a lot of talk about the cost of braiding services. Mm -hmm. What goes into the cost of braiding hair? First and foremost, how long it's going to take me to do it. That's definitely something that I have to consider because I'm on my feet for that whole time. Second of all is the time and energy that I put into learning and perfecting this hairstyle, Mm. this braiding. Mm. I'm not charging the same prices that I did four years ago, five years ago, because I'm better now. My work is neater now. It's a different Mm. quality to it. Also, products. Also, overhead expenses and also the the program that I use for people to book their appointments on mm. and also tools like you know I have to use certain tools my combs my brushes my blow dryers my hot tools like all of these things 
costs money. Hmm. A lot of people ask each other, we're asking ourselves if braiding is a luxury. I, I wonder, do you see braiding as a luxury? And and do you think that that has anything to do with the relationship between hair braiders and their clients? To answer that question, I would say it's kind of like asking, do you see eating as a luxury? No. However, you can choose to eat at McDonald's or you can go to a steakhouse. So similar to hair braiding, I would say it can be a luxury. You know, everything is up to par, sort of say. Mm. Or you can go to your cousin or something, assuming that the cousin is not his hairstylist. But, you know, go to your cousin and it's like <laughs> they can give you some braids and, you know, it's fine. It does. It gets the job done, but it's not the same experience. Mm-hmm. It might not be the same quality. It might not even last as long. Hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting. That's a really good way to put it. It seems like where the disconnect is coming in is that there's like people who want the Michelin star experience for the McDonald's. There we go. There we go. Absolutely. (laughs) That's that's the key. (laughs) Yes. 100%. Teray, thank you so much for talking with me today. This was really great. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. When we first started looking into the business of braiding, I wondered if a Black Supercuts, a polished, ethical environment where Black folks could get braided styles fast, cheap, and good, could ever be a solution to these issues. But now, I'm not even sure that's the right question. For the record, I do think some of the complaints clients have are completely fair. Not dealing with kinkier hair types or getting food in your hair are absolutely not okay. But after looking at the hair braid wars from so many different angles, it's clear that between inflation, restrictive licensing laws, and even painful injuries, braiders are up against way more than a lot of us realize. This isn't meant to excuse bad behavior from certain stylists. But in order for this industry and our cultural practice to thrive, we've got to treat its professionals with the respect they deserve. And whether you're getting waist-length braids or a medium-rare steak, now seems like a good time for us as consumers and as a society to reframe how we value labor and each other as people. Thanks again to Teray Rimple, Jessica Poitras from the Institute for Justice, and Julesy, whose video Abolish the Instagram Stylist can be found on YouTube. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. It's Martise from St. Louis. I'm not sure if you're a Travis Scott fan, but his latest album, Utopia, dropped last week. Yeah, pretty good. I was expecting to hear him talk about what happened at Astroworld. He doesn't really say anything about it, the deaths at his concert or, or, or any of it. I'm wondering, one, have you heard the album? And two, do you think Travis should have said something about Astroworld? Martise, first of all, thank you so much for calling in. I really appreciate your question. This is something that's been on my mind, too. I mean, all the discourse around the new Travis Scott album has been pretty much what you've said. This album sounds great, but also it doesn't really touch on the Astroworld tragedy at all. For those who don't know, the Astroworld tragedy took place in 2021, which was a concert festival that Travis Scott put on during his performance. There were a bunch of people in the audience that bum rushed forward and 10 people were killed. 
it was just so, 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 so deeply sad. Since then, though, Travis Scott's like PR strategy seems to have been to say nothing. But like you, I listened to the album to see what remark, if any, he would make about the tragedy. And I heard nothing. I suppose that, you know, maybe because of legal reasons, he might not be able to comment on the tragedy that happened. He still, though, with his music, had some opportunity to even poetically gesture at what it was like to be in the middle of this mass tragedy. I think about how Ariana Grande, quite a different situation, but how she addressed the Manchester bombing in her music. It's pretty surprising to kind of get the artistic version of essentially crickets. I wonder what it says about us as a public that will embrace new music without any sort of touching on a tragedy. I've enjoyed Travis Scott's music in the past. I just am not sure how to really engage in it in the future when something like this has kind of just been brushed under the rug. I think that's for everybody to figure out on their own what their individual listening relationship is going to be. But as for me, I think this might be my last go round with Travis Scott. And to all of you listening, I want to know what you want to talk about too. Anything from the biggest pop culture story of the week to the newest bangers to the TV show everyone is talking about. If there's something everyone in your world is going on about, record a quick voice memo with your first name, location, and the topic, and send it to ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. I cannot wait to hear what you want to talk about. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is Jessica Placzek. Engineering support came from Patrick Murray, Neil Tvault. We have fact-checking help from Greta Pittinger, Barkley Walsh. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.